And welcome to another week of Diffusion, the peak of your scientific week. My name's Tilly Boleyn, and today we'll have to use a scientific shoehorn to fit all the sciencey goodness into the next 30 minutes. Tonight we'll be exploring the magical world of invisibility and diving into the world of the International Whale Commission. So if you're listening to us in Sydney on 2SER or across Australia on the Community Radio Network, or you're potting us into your ears from wherever you are across the globe, sit back and let Jackie Pepper infuse all the latest science news into your mind. While it's known that stress can reduce a woman's fertility rate, new research suggests that adding exercise and dieting into an already stressful lifestyle might reduce fertility rates even further. Led by Sarah Berger, researchers at the Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia, have been studying the effects of stress on fertility and its effect in conjunction with dieting and exercise on monkeys. The fertility-reducing factor in a stressful lifestyle is the hormone cortisol, which is found in the increased levels in stressed women. This hormone interrupts signals to initiate the release of eggs from the ovary. And in extreme examples, this may cause amenorrhea, a state where a woman's period ceases altogether. According to news at nature.com, the monkeys used in the study were placed in mildly stressful situations and some were also given exercise and calorie-counted diet plans. It was found that 75% of the monkeys subjected to all three conditions stopped having periods, which is a dramatic increase on the 10% in the groups who were only being subjected to stress. These results, which will be presented to the European Society of Human Reproduction and Embryology, have raised questions as to how much of a responsibility stress does play in reducing a woman's fertility, and has led Berger to begin more studies. Genetic concepts have often been interpreted in artworks, but now, according to a report by ScientificAmerican.com, genetics has another element to add to the art community a new technique for calculating the date of origin of hand-printed art. After studying his collection of hand-printed maps of the Caribbean, Blair Hedges, a molecular biologist from the Pennsylvania State University, developed the print clock method for dating hand-printed art by making a connection between the increasing rate of break lines in maps and the rate of increase of genetic mutations. The break lines in a hand-printed map occur when the wood blocks and metal plates used to create the works begin to deteriorate. These blocks are used to make many replicates and the artworks produced show the effects of the age and wear and tear of the tools that are creating them. Drawing inspiration from the molecular clock technique, which is a genetic tool creating an average rate of increase of genetic mutations, which of course do not increase at a constant rate, Hedges studied the break lines in over 2,500 Renaissance maps to create a way to calculate the date of a certain print. Having already applied his print clock technique on a Bordon atlas, Hedges now has his sights on many other pieces of printed work. And would you believe that men who are overconfident and egotistical are more likely to wage war than those who aren't? According to ABC Science Online, Dr Dominic Johnson from Princeton University in New Jersey has scientific evidence that narcissistic males are not only more likely to start a war, 
but to lose it as well. The findings, which are being published in the Royal Society Journal Proceedings B, used a computer game which placed the player as the ruler of an imaginary country, currently in dispute with another over diamonds on their adjoining border. The 200 male and female participants were asked to rank how well they thought they would do before beginning this game. The experiment showed that men caused more than five times more unprovoked attacks, and the men who did wage wars had ranked themselves more highly in entering the game. Personality assessments after the game also showed that the men and not the women who declared war had higher levels of self-confidence. And while you might be thinking that this could be explained by the common culprit testosterone, saliva tests indicated that there wasn't much difference in levels between the warlords and the peacekeepers. magical power would you choose if you had a choice between A, invisibility, B, being able to morph into something else, or C, superhuman strength? I know what I'd choose. Invisibility. The things I would do. Just think about it. (laughs) Anyway, what would Mark West do? Imagine the things you would do if you had Harry Potter's invisibility cloak. I know what I'd be doing, Tilly. Everyone has had this fantasy, but now it seems that this staple of science fiction, from Star Trek to Doctor Who, may be close to science fact, although it requires a little imagination and a little faith in some extraordinary mathematics. Within the last few months, a number of theories for developing cloaking devices have been unveiled. Two recent reports in the magazine Science have described how experimental metamaterials can change the way light bends around an object to create an illusion that we might call a mirage. Metamaterials are composite materials that are designed to have interesting properties, such as the ability to bend light. They contain microscopic rods and metallic rings that can be tinkered with to interact with light in controllable ways, such as to manipulate how quickly light travels when near particular parts of the material. However, despite our espionage fantasies, any invisibility cloaks made out of the material in the near future would be extremely heavy and thick, and you would not be able to see out of them. Physicist Ulf Leonhardt of the University of St Andrews and an author of one of the reports in Science wrote, Imagine a situation where a medium guides light around a hole in it. The light rays end up behind the object as if they had travelled in a straight line. Any object placed in the hole would be hidden from sight. The medium would create the ultimate optical illusion, invisibility. This is like what happens to water when it runs around the outside of a smooth rock in a river, and occurs in our case here because of refraction a characteristic of light where it takes the quickest but not necessarily the shortest path. We can see refraction by simply dropping a pen in a glass of water and observing that it looks like it's bent when we know it's not. Sir John Pendry of Imperial College London, author of the second report, 
also predicted that with sufficient funding, the first of these devices could be around within five years. These devices could also be used to hide objects from other electromagnetic waves and even sound. This has obvious defence applications. David Schurig of Duke University in North Carolina and Pendry's co-author stated that this defence goal would be to conceal an object from discovery by agents using probing or environmental radiation. This is a different method of stealth than modern methods used to hide planes from radars. Current stealth technology revolves around reducing a plane's radar cross-section. Radars work by sending out electromagnetic radiation and then detecting when it reflects back off its target. To reduce the amount of radiation that is reflected back by the plane, we can design the plane's shape such that reflections do not go back in the direction they came. We can make it out of a material that is non-metallic and so less reflective, and we can paint it with paint that absorbs the radiation. But these methods never make a plane entirely invisible to radar. With this new technology, the hope is that the radiation does not even hit the plane in the first place. Along with the problem of not being able to see out from the inside of such a material is the fact that the more types of radiation against which we make the material work, for instance if the material cloaks against visible light and microwave radar, the more expensive and difficult the material is to produce. Another recent study comes from Professor Graham Milton of the University of Utah and Dr Nikolai Alexandru Nikorovki of right here in the University of Technology, Sydney. They studied materials with bizarre optical properties first populated in 1968 by Viktor Velasigo, a Russian physicist, to show that light could cancel itself out in some scenarios and make an object look invisible. The work remained a strange mathematical fantasy until six years ago with the creation of superlenses that can make objects, when placed near them, invisible. When an object is bathed in light of one colour, the light becomes trapped near the lens and almost exactly cancels out the light incident on each molecule in the object, so it has essentially no response to the incident light. Numerically, we see that the molecule is effectively invisible. But this is a mathematical solution. The real test for any of these invisibility solutions will be when somebody finally makes one and experiments with it. Until then, the best example of invisibility is that of Professor Shushumu Tashi of Tokyo University, who made a suit with a camera out the back, whose images were projected onto the front of the suit, so it seems as though you were looking through the wearer. This didn't quite work perfectly, however, as you need to be looking from the right angle for it to be effective. So until our mathematical fantasies come true, we can only fantasise about all the things we'd do if we were invisible. Can't we, Tilly? And that was Mark West reporting. I am so glad you are not invisible.
Depending on your particular side of the fence, it's either a triumph for traditional culture, modern trade practices and diplomacy, or it's the greatest ecological insult humans could inflict on the oceans. Yes, we're talking about whaling. The International Whaling Commission met recently and passed a resolution that will have dramatic consequences for our big blubbery cousins. Chris Stewart reports. So it looks as if the pro-whaling nations have had a pretty significant win at the International Whaling Commission's latest meeting in St Kitts. By the slimmest of margins, the IWC voted in a resolution that opens the door for a resumption of commercial whaling down the line after a 20-year moratorium. This resolution, passed with 33 votes for and 32 against, seems astounding for those of us who remember the proliferation of Save the Whales t-shirts in the 80s. For many people younger than 20, it must seem very strange indeed. You mean people could be allowed to hunt whales? And now the new IWC resolution is setting up guidelines for restricted culls of whales down the track. And that's a, that's a tricky thing to do. And it's worth examining why for just a second. First, let's quickly mention some of the more emotional issues about whaling, if only to then sidestep them entirely. Whatever the facts about pain suffered by whales, harpooned and then dragged onto a whaling vessel over the course of several hours, one of the major reasons the Save the Whales campaign was so successful in the first place is because, well, they're whales. They're the great beasts of the oceans. I mean, they're the size of a bus. They sing and they play and they slap their tails. And, I mean, do we really think that, for example, the naked mole rat would get its own T-shirt if it were facing extinction? Arguments can be made, indeed have been made, by Japanese pro-whaling spokespeople that culling whales is no different to culling any other animals, say, kangaroos. Some ecologists would beg to differ, but we'll get there in a second. Incidentally, I'm reminded of a conversation with a guy from the east coast of Canada a couple of years ago. This guy complained that they weren't allowed to hunt seals anymore. No one wants to see cute seals being clubbed to death, he said, and it's ruining the fishing industry out there. Seals eat fish, see, and so all the seals are eating all the fish, and that's why there's no fish left for the fishermen to catch in eastern Canada. Right, nothing to do with overfishing by human beings then. So anyway, if we can put aside the emotional bond that we seem to share with this, the largest of all the mammals, then the question becomes... Can you manage the culling of whales and ensure that they're not hunted to extinction? And that's the crucial question, because the IWC hasn't approved a return to open slather commercial whaling. That would need the approval of three quarters of the commission, not one half plus one. So the scientists are now charged with figuring out if you can manage whale populations. You might naively think that as long as there are lots of whales then you can set a maximum number to be killed each year and everything will be fine. But it's subtler than that. See, the Earth is changing. We're changing it. And so managing a population of whales or any other creature doesn't mean trying to keep everything as it is now. You've got to consider some first principles evolutionary biology here and you've got to allow populations the room to adapt. Over long timescales, species evolve in response to changes in their environment. To do that, there has to be enough genetic diversity 
which means if there aren't many of them around, they're not going to cope very well with, say, global warming or human overfishing of their main food source. But actually, it's even bigger than that. You have to consider an entire ecosystem to really know how it's going to react to something like a whale cull. Because even small changes in one species can and do affect other species in the same ecosystem in dramatic and unexpected ways. But if the ecosystem is rich enough and sufficiently diverse in species, then it can withstand, to some extent, an external influence. To get a handle on that idea, think for a second of a patch of Australian bush. If that ecosystem is rich in different plants and animals, an abundance of species, then all available niches in the ecosystem will have been nicely filled. If an invading species is introduced to such an ecosystem, it's not going to find it very easy to get a foothold. But say you clear that bush for farming and grazing, and in the process reduce the diversity of the plants and animals in the system, then an introduced species like a cane toad or a lantana bush, is going to go berserk. The ecosystem isn't robust enough to withstand the pressure. Even our precious national parks, beautiful though they may be, aren't large or diverse enough to withstand the pressure from outside. And so a good scientific approach to whaling would take a look at the whole ecosystem in which the whales splash about and see what would happen in the bigger picture. But that's hard to do. Not least because you'd need to define the ecosystem in the first place, if only to know whether some nation has breached the policy so you can enforce it. Much easier to focus on a single species at a time and try to manage that. But as the scientists try to work out whether there's such a thing as a reasonable whale cull, and as the politicians argue whether whales fall under the portfolio of culture, trade, science or the environment, you can be sure that we'll see the rise of a new T-shirt slogan, Save the Whales again. Chris Stewart there with a few of the issues surrounding the International Whaling Commission's decision that opens the door for a return to commercial whaling. And sadly, it's time to say goodbye from all of us here at Team Diffusion. If you'd like more information on any of the stories we featured today, just send us an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. Your science gurus this week were Jackie Pfeffer, Chris Stewart, Mark West and me, Tilly Berlin. Diffusion was produced by myself this week in the glorious studios of 2SER in Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network and all over the world through our podcast. You can search and subscribe to Diffusion on iTunes or at feeds.feedburner.com. The song taking you out today is Sexy Boy by Air. I'm Tilly Blinn and I hope you'll join us next week for more fantastical science on Diffusion. Diffusion.